Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. My friends and I had a rich fantasy life, and often that was spurred on by whatever we were consuming at the time. If we were watching a movie that took place in some fantasy world, we would incorporate that into our Dungeons and & Dragons. And if we saw a movie, and it had a situation we could relate to, then we would discuss it and put ourselves in the situation of the characters in the movie. That could be something like Star Wars, or it could be Indiana Jones, and that would often result in us playing something but then there would be movies like Night of the Comet. And in Night of the Comet, the two main characters get to run amok in a mall. This is a fantasy that many kids who grew up in the heyday of malls had, but we get to see it happen in a movie. And this caused my friends and I to fantasize what we would do. And whenever we would go to a mall, and we would frequently try to tag along with each other's families when we went to malls, for at least six months to a year after this movie came out, we would walk around the mall figuring out what the best strategy or how we would use our time there in a, say, post-apocalyptic world. My one friend would focus on survival, and so he was very interested in places that had a store that sold something like swords or knives, and we had a couple of stores that did that. Others, like me, were much more interested in toys, video games, pet stores, all the things I like to do at the mall on a regular basis, I just thought I would do much more of. And so my perfect mall had all of those things. And we would argue all the time about what would be the proper thing to do, which would be the best mall to go to. All of us ignoring any sort of realistic needs that we would have to have. Like, say, is there going to be power in the mall? Or is there going to be food in the mall? How fast would it go bad? What are the long-term repercussions? None of that mattered. Instead, we focused on the short-term, on the fantasy, and it was magical. It was just a wonderful time to not be burdened by reality. It's a part of childhood I miss a great deal. And sometimes now, when I rewatch a movie, I feel like I can recapture just a little bit of that. Although it's never going to be the same. On today's show, I'd like to talk to you about a movie that caused lots of walks around malls and conversations about what we would do in those malls when society collapsed, Night of the Comet. We'll talk about the people in front of and behind the camera. We'll talk about how well the film did, its development, its music, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. So we'll start off Night of the Comet by looking at the videotape of Night of the Comet that came out. This was a CBS Fox video release, Atlantic Video, a division of Atlantic Communications Group right on the cover. A very evocative cover with people all looking up into the sky at the comet and a doorway below and then stars everywhere. You're not sure what this movie is about if you were to see this. I can only imagine what people thought when they were renting this at the video store if they hadn't heard of it. But we can turn to the back and read what's back here. First 
first of all, there are two photos of the characters in the film, and underneath it, it says, The Comet's Coming and the World Will Never Be the Same. Then, Color, 1984. Night of the Comet is an offbeat, off-the-wall version of the end of humanity, served up with the accent on laughs. When a comet passes too close to Earth, Regina and Samantha, two valley girls, discover they suddenly have virtually all of Los Angeles to themselves and set out on a madcap lark kicked off by a wild shopping spree in a Los Angeles mall. But they soon learn they're sharing the city with a number of bizarre creatures who have reacted in various strange ways to the comet's effects. The girls would rather be making out and playing video games, but first, they've got to deal with the wackiest crew of crazies ever to walk a city street. A satiric blend of camp humor and skillful special effects, this merry mix of scares and silliness is one night you won't soon forget. 95 minutes, rated PG-13. That is a pretty good description of the film, but it doesn't get into the full plot and talk about all the characters. In the film, we learn that there's a comet which hasn't passed near Earth in 65 million years, which coincidentally is when the dinosaurs were wiped out. And it is a couple of days before Christmas and everyone is gathering around to watch the comet. Meanwhile, Regina, or Reggie Belmont, works at a movie theater and we see her playing Tempest, the video game. So great arcade spot. She is annoyed because there are initials on there that are not hers, DMK, and that'll be important at the end of the film. Reggie also has a sister, Samantha, who gets into an argument with her mother. Because of circumstances, they both find themselves spending time in steel-lined locations during the comet's passage. And that saves their lives, because the comet is a killer comet. And when they wake up the next morning, there's this reddish haze and piles of red dust everywhere, which are people. Not everyone, though. Regina, or Reggie's boyfriend, Larry, gets killed by one of these zombies. Reggie's inside trying to beat that high score again. She doesn't know Larry's killed, goes outside, looks in the air. It looks all reddish, but thinks it's LA. It's smog. She encounters the zombie, but escapes. Eventually hooks up with her sister. They go to the local radio station where they meet another survivor, Hector Gomez, who also survived because he spent the night in his truck. When they are on the radio, they are heard by a group of researchers in an installation out in the desert. Hector at this point leaves to go see if his family's okay. Then Reggie and Sam go to the mall to go shopping for guns and clothing, anything they might need to survive. They get into a fight and are taken prisoner, but are saved by those scientists. The scientists thought they were going to be really smart, but they messed up. And they are all doomed themselves because of their exposure, which one of the scientists, Audrey White, recognizes and, through trickery, saves Reggie. And Hector and Samantha, Sam, come out to rescue her. They do so, defeating the scientists. They also save a young boy and a girl who are about to be processed to keep the scientists alive. Eventually, it rains and washes the red dust away. Sky clears, and it looks like everything's going to be fine. At this point, Reggie and Hector sort of pair up, going to raise the kids together, kind of be their parents maybe. Sam's not sure what to make of this, doesn't have anybody she's going to be with. She's going to be the third wheel. She walks out into traffic. There should be no cars, but suddenly a car comes spinning around the corner, almost hits her. In the car is Danny Mason Keener, who is a survivor, just like them, and sort of age appropriate to Sam. She gets in the car, and they drive off, and we see the initials on his vanity plate, DMK, the very initials that were on the Tempest machine that Reggie was playing at the beginning. So we've known this character the whole movie. The film was written and directed by Tom Eberhardt, born in 1947. He's a director, screenwriter, and producer. Worked on films like Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Without a Clue, and probably his most famous work, Night of the Comet.
Thomas Eberhardt, when he wrote the script, wanted to take the idea of a post-apocalyptic world set in an empty city and put strong female protagonists in it. He had some experience working with teenage girls while working on some PBS specials, and he thought the things they valued and talked about would make them interesting characters. Instead of looking at the apocalypse as a horrible end-of-the-world thing, they saw it as an adventure. And so he wrote the script to be lighthearted and funny. Unfortunately, at a very difficult time convincing anyone to want to make the film. But around the same time, two kind of interesting films hit theaters, Valley Girl and Repo Man. They were quirky, offbeat, they were set in the L.A. area, and the Atlantic Releasing Corporation thought that maybe this could be a hit similar to them. It has the same vibe, and they invested $700,000 in the film to get it started. Eberhardt did not get along with the producers who thought this was just some B-film that they didn't want to get assigned to. And they tried to get him replaced in interviews while Eberhardt said that they were difficult to him. He also said that he was lucky to get producers with those production skills. These were people who had produced bigger films, who wanted to work on bigger films. And so having them made the film happen. Are you a fan of the Retros podcast? Do you like more retro stuff? Why not check out the Retros Patreon? Go to patreon.com slash retroist. Supporters of the show get bonus episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, access to the Retroist Discord, and more. Feel good about yourself and make a difference in the world. Support the Retroist. The film has a fairly large cast. We'll try to focus just mainly on the main cast. Catherine Mary Stewart played Regina, Reggie Belmont. Catherine Mary Stewart was born in 1959, Canadian actress, probably best known for a host of very popular 80s films, Night of the Comet, The Last Starfighter, and Weekend at Bernie's. She was also in the cult film The Apple, and she's had a good television career as well, appearing as Kayla Brady in Days of Our Lives, and appearing on shows like Knight Rider, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and The Outer Limits, amongst many others. Most recently, she's actually appeared in some Hallmark holiday films, which seems to be a pretty good career option for a lot of people. Kelly Maroney played Samantha Sam Belmont. Maroney is a actor in both film and television, known for a lot of great cult films, including Chopping Mall, The Zero Boys, Scream Queen Hot Tub Party, and Night of the Comet. A lot of people might remember her for one of her earlier film appearances in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where she played the cheerleader. A great appearance in that film. She was also a soap opera star, appearing in One Life to Live and Ryan's Hope. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. She's been in a lot of things on TV. She was on True Blood, Murder, She Wrote, Simon and Simon, Chicago Hope. She's not the only one who came out for this role. Heather Langenkamp, who you might remember as the star of A Nightmare on Elm Street, also read for the role, and according to some sources, was the number one choice for the film. But Maroney got it. Robert Beltran played Hector Gomez. Robert Beltran was born in 1953. He got his big break playing Raul Mendoza in the comedy Eating Raul in 1982. But he's definitely most famous for his role as Commander Chakotay in the TV series Star Trek Voyager. Sharon Farrell played Doris, who was Reggie and Sam's stepmom. Born in 1940, she passed away in 2023. Had a great career in film and television. She was also a dancer, starting as a ballerina in the American Ballet Theater Company. She made her film debut in 1959 and would continue to work into the 2000s. Mary Warrenov, great character actor, played Audrey White. Warrenov is a actor, writer, painter, worked with Roger Corman and Andy Warhol, appearing in over 80 movies, also appearing in TV shows like Knight Rider and Charlie's Angels. 
what's great about being a character actor is people want to have you. But she appeared in so much stuff when you look at her resume. Lots of cult films like Night of the Comet, Chopping Mall, Rock and Roll High School, but also in TV series like Buck Rogers, Charlie's Angels, Mr. Belvedere, Murder, She Wrote, St. Elsewhere, Babylon 5, Highlander. Just works all the time. Jeffrey Bon Lewis played Dr. Carter, who headed the think tank, so not a really great thinker. Should have closed those vents. In addition to being a solid actor, he's also the father of Juliette Lewis. He was born in 1935. He passed away in 2015. Appeared in over 200 films and television shows. Worked with Clint Eastwood quite a lot. Born in New Jersey. He grew up in California. If you look at his list of movies and TV shows, it's very large. He was on shows like Gunsmoke and Mannix, Golden Girls, The X-Files, of course Murder, She Wrote, like everybody else, Highway to Heaven, Magnum P.I., Walker, Texas Ranger. Then you look at films, it's amazing how many films he did with Eastwood, including two of my favorites, Any Which Way You Can and Every Which Way But Loose. Love a film with an orangutan. Finally, Larry was played by Michael Bowen. Bowen was born in 1953. Probably best known for his work in the cult film Valley Girl, where he played Tommy, who is the romantic rival of Nicolas Cage in that film. But he appeared in lots of other things, things like Breaking Bad and Lost, Kill Bill, Django Unchained. The film has a lot of other great actors in it, but just too many to mention. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody. What would you do? If our new civilization is on us. Bitchin', isn't it? The legal drinking age is now 10, but you will need ID. Let's be real. It's the night of the comet. The stars are up The night the teenagers ruled the world. Night of the Comet. Rated PG-13. The film was released on November 16th, 1984, and it earned $3.5 million its opening weekend. That put it in third place, and it would stay in theaters for six weeks, making $14.4 million on a $700,000 budget. Not a bad return. It is also noted as being one of the first films to carry the PG-13 rating. The film has gone on to cult status and does pretty well on modern aggregation sites that look at films. Anyone who writes reviews and appreciates B-films or cult films usually has nothing but good things to say about it. But even reviewers at the time realized that this film was supposed to be a B-picture that exceeded the B-picture framing. Variety said, Eberhardt creates a visually arresting B-picture in the neon primary colors of the cult-hit liquid sky. But what else was out, and what does my favorite reviewer, Lou Luminek, have to say about this film? Let's take a look at my local paper, which I printed out here. Take a look at it. And we'll start off with Lou's review, which he put out the day the film was released. And Lou is very positive about the film. He starts off by saying, Picture this. The world's been cometized. One Christmas Eve, a comet makes its first appearance above Earth in 65 million years, its rays reducing the vast majority of Earth's population to a substance resembling rust. That's a great description of the film. He says later on, It certainly won't tax your intellect, but Night of the Comet is fun. His favorite scene is Reggie's attempt to cheer up Samantha about the lack of boys, her dermatologist's death, and other problems facing post-apocalypse adolescents. They go shopping on Beverly Hills, now deserted Rodeo Drive, to the accompaniment of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. I want to talk about that Girls Just Want to Have Fun a little bit later, but let's look at other stuff. I think Lou is saying, go see this film. Remember, he doesn't give a thumbs up or thumbs down. He just says what the film's about and if you should see it. 
So it was playing in my area. We had the fourplex and the sixplex still at this point. We'll start with the fourplex. They're showing missing in action. And this is where Knight of the Comet is showing. So Knight of the Comet. Oh God, you devil. And Silent Night, Deadly Night. Pretty sure I saw Knight of the Comet and Oh God, You Devil at the same time, or at least right after one another. And I think I went to see Oh God, You Devil when my friends wanted to see Silent Night, Deadly Night, but I was really afraid to see that. And so I might have gone to see Oh God, You Devil at the same time. It's just a choice I made. At the sixplex, they're showing Just the Way You Are, Terminator, A Soldier's Story, Nightmare on Elm Street, where Heather Langenkamp managed to land and not be in Night of the Comet, No Small Affair, and All of Me. And I definitely saw All of Me, as well as Terminator, in the theater at the time. So let's look at some of these ads they have here and see which one's the biggest. Night of the Comet isn't bad. It's about a quarter of a page, the same as Oh God, You Devil. Everything else is smaller except for Just the Way You Are, which is a Christy McNichol film. I remember seeing commercials for this, and that's the biggest one. Everything else is much smaller. Terminator is very small. A Nightmare on Elm Street is small. Missing in Action, that's a decent-sized one. Amadeus, small. Oh, the brother from another planet. I couldn't wait to see this. I don't know why. I saw an ad for it and really wanted to see it at the time. I think I had to wait to rent it. I don't think it ever came to my town. It's a John Sayles film. I really enjoyed it at the time. What else is happening? The circus is coming to town. That's right. Celebrating 100 years, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus is coming to the Meadowlands. You can get good seats as late as showtime. Seats are pretty cheap. They are either $6.50, $8.50, $9.50, or $10.50, and you get $2.50 off if it's a kid. I was always excited when the circus came to town, mostly because my mother loved the circus when she was a kid, and she would tell me all sorts of stories about when the circus would come in, and a circus train, all sorts of stuff, and I would hoped to see similar things when I went to the circus and never did. It was still fun, but those days are gone. They're also doing a, I remember this, the Port Authority Bus Terminal Ticket Giveaway. This would always be in the paper. They did this multiple times. If you were going to the Port Authority, you could bring this entry form that you printed out in the paper and drop it off, and then they would choose 50 people to win tickets. And nobody in my family went to the Port Authority at this point. But I always remember thinking, oh, I would win these tickets so easily if my family just went to the Port Authority. Finally, here's an ad for People Express, which was a discount airline that flew out of Newark Airport, probably other airports too. But I remember it because they advertised nonstop in my area, in the papers and on TV. And it really introduced my family, at least, to the idea of a discount airline when you could fly for $59 to, say, Minneapolis. That seemed really cheap to me, because I remember reading about plane ticket costs at the time. But they would take out full-page ads advertising. They were around for a while, but didn't last. But I have strong memories of all of their advertising. There's a certain kind of guy who will never say, it's not my job, because everything is his job. You know what you call someone like that? An owner. There's a company where each and every employee is an owner, with an average of $40,000 worth of stock. People Express Airlines. At People Express, each of us feels like we own the airline, because we do. The film had a good soundtrack. It was released by McCullough Records and has become very collectible. On side one, you had Revolver singing Unbelievable, Learn to Love Again by Chris Farron and Amy Holland, Strongheart by John Townsend, Let My Fingers Do the Talkin' by Stallion, and Whole World is Celebrating by Chris Farron. On side two, you had Hard Act to Follow by Diana DeWitt, Virgin in Love by Tom Pace, Tell Me Yourself by Revolver, Trouble by Skip Adams, and Lady in Love by Revolver. A lot of people in love.
The album was released on LP and cassette in 84, and they didn't re-release that version ever, which has made it collectible. They did release a special edition from the soundtrack with seven songs that you hear in the film that weren't in the original. This includes the Tammy Holbrook version of Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. I mentioned this earlier because I was very confused when I saw this movie and heard this version of Girls Just Wanna Have Fun because I thought it might be the Cindy Lauper version, but I wasn't sure, and it wasn't, and it sounds different, but it's a pretty good version of Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, just not the Cindy Lauper version, probably because it was cheaper. Still, it haunts me because I conflated the two at the time. I could have sworn it was the Cindy Lauper version, and every time I watch the film, I think, oh, they replaced this for some reason with the non-Cindy Lauper version, but they didn't. It's always been the Tammy Holbrook version, so good on Tammy Holbrook. The film had a score as well, but they've never released the score. The composer was David Richard Campbell, who's a Canadian-American arranger, conductor born in 1948, has worked on films like Brokeback Mountain, Rock of Ages, Dreamgirls, Annie, the 2014 version, and has worked with artists like The Rolling Stones, Radiohead, Metallica, Rush, many, many more. Got to start way back at the age of 23, working with Carol King on Tapestry, which was a really big deal. Then would work with people like Marvin Gaye, and then from there would just continue to work. If you're looking at video cassette recorders and you're confused by all your choices, just look at the most important feature of all, the picture. And Sony Betamax records a sharper picture than VHS. That's not just our opinion. In tests throughout the country, more people said the picture was sharper with Sony Betamax than VHS. So why doesn't anyone else talk sharper picture? Because no one else can. Betamax, a sharper picture. The film was released on home video and Vedamax, as well as CED Video Disc, in August of 1985. And as I read, it was distributed by CBS Fox Video. Eventually, they would put out a Good Times video version in 1990. I wouldn't go out of your way to pick up a Good Times version. It would eventually get released on DVD in 2007. And then Shout Factory, who does great things, would release a Blu-ray version in 2013. And eventually, the film would get its Ultra HD Blu-ray Blu-ray release in 2023. It was really this home video and cable that helped the film get catapulted into cult status because a lot of people went and saw it in the theater at the time. It got good word of mouth. But these home videos, when we would have this on the shelf, even years later, this thing was difficult to keep on the shelves at the video rental store. And when I sold videos, people were always buying copies of the film. We would easily be able to move the good time video version of this because people have very positive memories of the film. As you might guess, and because it's a cult film, strong characters, was low budget to produce, there has been talk of remaking the film. That started back in 2018 with Roxanne Benjamin attached to work on the film. The script had been submitted, and while we're not sure if this is ever going to happen, in 2023, Benjamin mentioned that the project was still alive, but moving very slowly. So maybe in a few years, we will see a new version of Night of the Comet. Hopefully it captures the energy and fun of the original film. If we don't get that, that's okay, because you have the original, and the original is fun. I would almost say, because of the time and place and direction, it might be dated in the fact that it was made in the 80s, but it's a fishbowl of this little area, and a time capsule, and the way they react isn't all that different from how we might react nowadays. Remember, this is post-apocalypse, so your phone isn't going to work. The technology we depend on wouldn't work the same way, in theory. So, the physical world 
becomes your playground for the end of the world fantasies. And so I would hope with the new film, they would recapture that. But at the same time, they don't need to because the original one interprets that very well. So do yourself a favor. And if you haven't seen Night of the Comet, check it out. You're going to love it. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on social media. I'm at most of the major social medias at Retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by giving it a five-star review wherever you download the show. Because of algorithms, it's really only the five-star reviews that help the show. So if you like the show and you have the time, I'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show further, you could do so by supporting it on Patreon. You can find The Retroist on Patreon at patreon.com retroist. Supporters of the show for just a couple of bucks a month get bonus tracks, bonus episodes, bonus scans, and access to The Retroist Discord, the greatest retro community on the internet. Thank Thanks everyone for listening to the show and I hope you have a great weekend. Oh, that was rough. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.